Tonight, we're going to go back uh, to our series we started last week entitled Bless This Home, how we, talking about how we build lives and families on the Word of God. Um, it's important and vital that we seek to build our homes and to build our lives in the way that God has set it up, especially if we want to live in a way that honors Him and we want to, to, to invest um, in one another in a biblical way and invest, have an opportunity to invest in the next generation, whether they be our own kids or someone else's kids, you know, our, grand, our grandkids or um, kids in, in our church and the spheres of life that God has given us to minister in. Uh, we want to view things the way God has set them up. And so tonight, we're going to look at a couple passages that deal with the biblical picture of marriage. Last week, we talked about the most important relationship in your home. And that is your relationship, whether you're a mom, a dad, a husband, a wife, single, um, widowed, um, a child, a teen, anywhere in between, the most important relationship in your home is your relationship to God. And so now we're going to go from there and begin to look at the relationships in our homes and then practically talk through those relationships as well. And so tonight uh, we're going to look at this and then I'm just going to tell you don't celebrate too loud, but I'm not going to be, uh, I'm actually going to be preaching in this series um, for a while because we have some special things coming up. I was just thinking about that this week. Um, this happens from time to time where like all of a sudden we have some special things that happen in our church. And so we actually won't be back in this series um, for about a month. So, um, we're, so we have to get through this tonight, okay? Um, now, don't, don't worry, it's not that long. But uh, we want to make it through and, and look at this tonight. In my home, we have a budding romantic. Unsurprisingly, it's one of my daughters, Chloe, who has recently developed an appreciation in her life for this thing we call love, right? She, uh, she cheers when, we come, when I come home for lunch or I'm from work. She cheers for mom and dad to show affection towards each other. And she wants to receive her own dose of love from her parents. And, this is a scary one, she talks about her future plans for marriage. And I have taught her this one phrase she needs to remember. My daddy has a big shotgun, okay? She's supposed to say that to all the boys. Yeah, see? Okay, it's taking effect, right? Marriage is a beautiful thing. You know why it's beautiful? Because there is innate beauty in everything God creates. Because, simply, God is the one who created it, therefore it is beautiful. Of course, in a sinful world, marriage has faced its share of challenges over the years. Mankind, in sin, has demeaned, abused, and at times flat out rejected God's definition of biblical marriage. But that doesn't make, just because someone rejects the truth, doesn't make the truth go away. That doesn't make God's definition go away. I heard this yesterday in our, our marriage seminar. Pastor Sean Cook, he, said, he gave this statement, and it, it just it captured me when I, when I thought about it. The creator establishes the rules of engagement. And that's an important thing to remember for anything in our lives, the creator establishes the rules of engagement. So when it comes to marriage, the one who created marriage establishes the rules of engagement. When it comes to our world, the one who made it establishes the rules of engagement. And I don't know about you, I, the illustration was used yesterday about board games. 
How many of you, when you play board games, have house rules? You know, things that, that you do, and you go over to somebody's house, and you ask them, and they're like, what are you talking about? That's not in the rule book. And you're like, nobody ever plays by the rule book, right? There are no house rules when it comes to God. What God says goes because he is the one in control. He is the one who is sovereign. And tonight, we will look at the biblical picture of how marriage is defined and what that means for us. And what we see tonight is that marriage is God's ordained union and falls under his rule and reign for its definition, duties, and purposes. So tonight, our goal is to talk about what marriage is, what God designed it to be, and, and we may not, we're not really going to get into the nitty-gritty problems we run into in our marriages. We understand there are issues that, that come up and roles that God has defined for us to play in our marriage. We're not going to get there yet. Tonight, we're just laying the groundwork for what is marriage, what does, how does God define marriage, how does God view marriage, and, and how we should align ourselves to the purposes of the Creator. So the first passage I'm going to have you turn to, is, if you're not there already, is Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. We're going to have two <clears throat> main texts tonight, Genesis chapter 2 and Matthew chapter 19. And what we see in Genesis 2 is we see the purpose of marriage in creation. We'll, um, we'll read the passages as we come to them, and then we'll unpack them as we go. Genesis 2, beginning in verse 18, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife And they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. So here in Genesis chapter 2, we get a a, a more in-depth look at the creation of man and woman, some things that took place on the sixth day of creation. And what we're confronted with is we're confronted with, first of all, the problem of solitude that happens in the life of Adam. Now, if you've read Genesis 1 and 2, you understand that there is a lot happening in these verses that you find there. Here we are introduced to our all-powerful, all-wise creator God. We see his will and his ways unfold before us. We see his wisdom on display as he creates everything out of nothing in only six days using nothing but his word. Because we have to understand this, that when God speaks, things happen. The Bible, it's very interesting, you open the book of Genesis, the very first words, if you're reading the Bible, you know, cover to cover, the very first thing you're going to see is about the very beginning. The Bible wastes no time just jumping right into the action. The Bible takes no time to to give you some um, um, proof that, well, this is God, and this is who he is, and this is how you know he exists. It, It pre- 
it comes in with the preconceived notion that God is who he says he is. He does exist. And because he exists, this is what he has done. It speaks of God as he is, the uncreated creator with unmatched power and authority over all things. Everything God created then drove towards one purpose and one pinnacle. Do you realize that everything God made, he made with one ultimate creation in mind? Do you know who that is? It is mankind. He is the capstone of God's creation. He formed man... No, no, he did not speak to form man, but he personally formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into him the breath of life. He created man in his own image. That's something that's not said about any other part of God's creation. So, because God made Adam in his own image, and because God very personally created Adam, giving him a, a living soul and breath from God himself, that makes Adam automatically greater than anything else God created. Right? Up to that point, there is no comparison. And as, ex- as is the expected outcome, everything God made is declared to be good and very good. But we get to this passage in Genesis 2, and we see there is a lone exception to this. Because when God made man, he made Adam only. But God in his sovereignty knew that even then, that this wouldn't be the end of his creation. God, in his infinite wisdom, did things in such a way to show us the nature of mankind. Could God have created Adam and Eve at the same time? Sure, he could have. But in his wisdom, he didn't to show us how he created us. You realize that God created you as a person to be a relational being. We, at our core, are such. We are wired that way. He designed us to have relationships. Now, his purpose was for man to have a relationship, first and foremost, with his creator, with God. But that wasn't the only relationship that God designed for him to have. And we read here that it was not good For Adam, the man, to be alone in his creation. Therefore, God declared his creative purpose to make a helper comparable, or another word is corresponding to him. You see, there was nothing else like Adam in all of God's creation. I mean, God knew that, right? And so, he shows Adam that. Adam's job was to name all of the animals that God had created. And as he did so, guess what he observes? He observes that, that there is a way in which God had set it up, that the animal kingdom was full of those that, that yes, they are different in their, in their, in their gender and, uh, because you have one of each, you know, male and female, but they are like each other in that in their, they're similar. Adam in doing so, found there was no one like himself. When it says that Adam found no one comparable or corresponding to him, what it means is he found no one else created in God's image. He could not interact with anyone else. He was actually truly alone. And so, with God establishing the need clearly for mankind then and now, 
we see the creation of Eve, and with it, God's creation of marriage. So the answer to the problem of solitude was in the woman that God created. It was painfully obvious that Adam needed someone else. God had created him as such. And so, God, having established that fact, created the perfect mate for Adam. And though he used a rib from Adam's side, God created Eve in the same way, and that is this, in his own image. Woman is no less created in the image of God as man. What is true of Adam is true of Eve. She is man's equal. She is made in God's image and equally loved by her creator. She is the perfect fit for Adam, which is no surprise because God made her. Adam recognizes this. His statement that he makes in verse 23, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she is taken out of man, is acknowledgement of her comparableness to him. As one author put it, she is the crown of Adam, who is the head of the home. When God created Eve, he brought her to Adam, and in that moment, God created the most wonderful union called marriage. And that's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time in this passage. I wanted to set it up, but get us to this point that we see the creation of marriage in verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. If we are to understand marriage, we must first understand its origins. We understand marriage isn't just a social construct that's cooked up by mankind. It isn't invented out of necessity or desire, but it is a holy union that God ordained from the very beginning. And as such, we have to understand that the first and last word on marriage come from God. He defines what it is. He defines what it isn't, how it functions, and the roles that are played in marriage. Now, because of sin... Mankind has come up with a lot of ideas of what marriage is and isn't, what's allowed and not, and how it should work. But that authority to define the terms, as I said earlier, belongs to the creator of all and the initiator of this union. So let's make a few observations from this passage about God's purpose in creating marriage. First, God designed the participants in the union of marriage. He designed the participants The design from the very beginning was this, one man and one woman. That's what the text says, that a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. This is how God set it up. This is the way it is to be, that a man would leave his father and mother and hold fast to be joined to, literally the idea is to be permanently bonded to his wife. Obviously, this very basic definition of marriage is under attack in the world we live in. It doesn't matter what mankind and sin may define as marriage and as legitimate marital partners in the sight of God, it will never be anything than what God has said. The number, okay, so not only do you have the participants, right, a man and a woman, you have a number specified as well. In the creation of marriage, we see that it's designed to be a monogamous relationship, one man for one woman. Now, how many of you have read the book of Genesis? And how many of you realize it didn't take long for that one to get out of whack, right? You ever heard about this guy named Abraham? And how many wives did he end up with? Two. And then you keep going. You ever heard about a guy named Jacob? Right? And you keep going through the Old Testament. You ever heard of a guy named Solomon? 
right? It doesn't take long for the sin of mankind to start to pervert this view of marriage by God. But, again, even in this mistaken sin, it doesn't thwart what, how God has intended for marriage to be played out. These two individuals from different families come together to make a new cohesive family unit. So this then is the participants of marriage. One man and one woman, okay, that's the number and the gender, and those are, those are who God set it up to be. Now secondly, we see the purposes that God has set up for marriage in this union. A major purpose is the companionship that's seen in the creating process of woman. These two individuals are designed to be in a relationship of close personal friendship and companionship. That's the design of marriage. You know, there's this statement that some people say, hey, my, my spouse, so you can fill it in, my husband or my wife, they're my best friend. You realize that's not some hokey-pokey homeschooler thing, right? That's not some, well, you have a sad life if your spouse is your best friend. That's the way God set it up. They're supposed to be your best friend. The best human friend God has given you is your spouse. The sin problem in our own life that we fight brings difficulties to that relationship just like any other friendship. And we'll, like I said, we'll deal with those as we go through. Tonight is, is not about dealing with those things necessarily, but about the, the, the definition of it. Secondly, a major purpose in marriage is the expression of physical love. God designed the most intimate relationship of humans to be shared physically between a husband and a wife. And you have to understand from the scriptures Marriage is the only relationship that that expression of love is found. It isn't found in any other relationship, or it's not supposed to be found in any other relationships outside of the marriage relationship. It is beautiful when exercised biblically, and it is a self-giving, faithful love towards one another. It is promoted by God in the scriptures as enjoyable and pleasurable and right. And it leads very often to the third purpose of God in marriage, and that is, is, the, is, is procreation, is children. We have to see and see, you know, we, we understand that children are a gift from God. And in marriage, children are often found. Now, that may not be the case for every couple based on the time of life or struggles biologically or other factors. But God did design marriage for the purpose of creating children. And what an incredible gift from God children are. That is one of my precious gifts that God has given to me is our four children. So marriage has its participants, its purposes. And I want to make a very quick observation, but then we're actually going to spend our second point on tonight's message on this major point of marriage. And that is its permanency. Marriage is a beautiful thing, and God has intended it for it to last. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Marriage is a gift of God to man. And by man, I mean mankind, both men and women. It is the consent of one man and one woman to join together in a public as well as intimate relationship from different families to form one new family. So therefore, we must understand that marriage isn't just a civil union. 
No, when you enter a marriage, you enter a covenant before a holy God. And whether you acknowledge him or not doesn't change the fact that God is the creator of these things. And so when marriages aren't approached biblically, it's little wonder they have struggles. And one of these major attacks is launched on the permanence of marriage, which, which Jesus himself addresses in Matthew 19. So let's, let's spend uh, another point here tonight on the permanence of marriage by God's design. I invite you to turn to Matthew 19, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 10. This comes from the life of Jesus and his ministry. And as is often the case, there are those who object him and his purposes. They um, reject him. And we see these things that they were questioning him about here. Matthew 19, beginning in verse 1, now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So then they are no longer longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. His disciples said to him, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. So we see here the design of God on marriage is that it is to be permanent. And we see the attack of sin that, that is raged and, and, the, and the, the war that's waged on God's design. The passage in Genesis 2 is an extremely lovely and wonderful thing. It should be to us because it's a perfect world. It's a place where sin didn't exist. How many of you wish that you didn't have to turn the page from Genesis chapter 2 to Genesis chapter 3? But we do, right? The story doesn't end differently every time you read it. Everything changes because Adam and Eve chose to disobey God. And from that moment on, trouble ensued. Because Satan and sin opposed God at every turn. And now, God's very personal creation has turned against the creator embroiled in sin. And with that, Everything God made is now under attack. Now, this, of course, includes this beautiful relationship of marriage. And throughout Israel's history, marriage had been attacked. You read the Old Testament, and you'll find that people participated in things like polygamy and adulterous relationships and forbidden relationships and divorce. And this is the focus of Jesus' interaction in Matthew 19. The Pharisees approached Jesus with a hot-button issue of their day. You think divorce is something people talk about today. They were talking about it then and trying to deal with it. And you have to understand, just briefly, there's a couple schools of thought that come out of the religious leaders of Israel historically. One, uh, some religious, religious teachers held the view that divorce could be sought for pretty much any reason. One of the commentators I read this week said, you can find some of these written down, you know, things like, like she burned di- dinner, and so therefore, they, you know, she was divorced, okay? 
um, the husband divorced her. That's probably not a good idea, right? Um, and then there was this other school of thought that held, you know, this is really reserved for what Jesus talks about here, for, for sexual morality, for, for things like that. The problem, though, is clear. Divorce was being sought and seen as a very real option for people who wanted to get out of this relationship. And so Jesus answers the question directly with the authority of God, for he is God. Here's the view of God from Jesus. And understand, Jesus doesn't fall into this trap that the Pharisees try to set up. They try to get him to take the side of, hey, here's a, here's a man-made argument. Which is, is better? And Jesus doesn't do that. He goes right for what God said. He simply points back to the creation and, and the, that, that account there of the institution of marriage. God's view is clear. Divorce was never part of God's plan. We have to be, we have to be upfront about that. Because in the beginning, things were perfect, right? So here's the intended goal and purpose. One man, one woman together permanently. And when a man and a woman join in marriage, they do so to become one. This union isn't talking about a physical act. It also has spiritual ramifications before the Lord. Marriage is a heavenly work. Jesus says, what God joins together, let not man separate. Everything God made, he called good. Marriage is one of those things that God made. Marriage is a covenant between two people with God as witness that they will faithfully commit to one another and undertake this most sacred and solemn relationship with their lives. We have to understand that marriage is a work of God and divorce is a work of man. And that is exactly what is further addressed in this passage. So, The Pharisees hear what Jesus has to say, and then they're going to take it a step further. Well, okay, then what are you going to say to this? And they have another argument. Now, who do you think is the Pharisees' all-time spiritual superhero? It's right here in the passage, yeah, Moses. I mean, there's nobody better than Moses, because they live by what? Trying to keep the law. Who gave the law? Well, God, yes, we understand that, but <laughs> God, okay. But he gave it through Moses. So to them, I mean, Moses is the be-all, end-all. That's why you see them appealing to Moses over and over again. And so they appeal to Moses yet again. And they say, well, you know, what about when Moses said, verse 7, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? They aren't interested in the truth. They're interested in arguing the point. So let's talk about that for a second. Let's talk about what Moses said, about how Moses, in their minds, in the minds of some people, well, Moses commanded divorce. I'm going to read you a passage, and I'm going to put it on the screen, and I want you to tell me where in this passage Moses commands divorce. Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house when she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. If the, letter, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, Then her former husband, who divorced her, must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. I ask you, where in that passage does God God command through Moses 
to get divorced. He doesn't do it. What's the command about? The command is about when the divorce happens, what the process is. See, God in his goodness and his graciousness does tell us how to deal with sin in our lives. He tells the people of Israel, hey, if, if you divorce someone, there are no takebacks, so to say. That's a permanent thing. You, you have separated what God has joined together, and you can't go back. You know, if, if God makes it clear that someone divorces their spouse, it's, it's not, it's not a, it's something they can go back and undo later on. God permitted the divorce to happen, and he told people how to deal with the ramifications of that sin. You say, well, why would God permit divorce to happen? Because God allows men to choose their sin, but he doesn't let us choose the consequences of that sin. And that's seen over and over in the scriptures. So Jesus goes on here in chapter 19 of Matthew to discuss the one and only instance in which divorce is not considered adultery. He speaks of an adulterous relationship occurring and the fallout that may occur within a marriage or may occur within a marriage after that. It would seem from what Jesus says that in such a case, the party not involved in such adultery would be free to remarry again. However, I would hasten to point out that yet again, we must understand this was not the ideal situation that God intended. This is not the first option, but if we want to put it in man's terms, perhaps a last resort. If at all possible, reconciliation and restoration should be sought and attempted. But it's important to note God's view on these things. And of course, this leads us to some very messy instances in our lives. Because our neighbors, our friends, our churches, our own families have been touched by divorce and remarriage. Our, uh, my, uh, there's not a person in this room who hasn't in some way in their life been touched by this, right? We, we, we have this going on. So what do we do when this occurs in our lives and the lives of other people? We have to understand divorce is always ugly and it always hurts many people. The families of those who are married, the married couple, any children from that marriage, and we understand that blended families face unique struggles, even if the marriage falls under one of these categories. Divorce is a sin that goes against God's holy creation, but as with any sin, God offers forgiveness. Now, forgiveness doesn't mean there aren't consequences for our sins, but individuals, families, and children, others, though they may live with the repercussions of such actions, doesn't mean that there can never be restoration to God's service or that one who is divorced before salvation cannot be used of God because God's grace is always greater than our sin. And I think it, it, it doesn't do us any good to talk about a problem like divorce and remarriage, to talk about any kind of sin without talking about the grace of God. And how wonderful that is in our lives. We can offer healing to the hurting. Restoration to those away from God and eternal hope to those in darkness. Understanding that if, if permanence then is the goal, we must practically understand what that requires on our part. Lastly tonight, I want to look at this idea of, of when we talk about God's definition of marriage, 
that its purpose in creation, its permanence by God's design, we understand that marriage takes a partnering effort. If we're going to make this thing work, right, then it's going to take some effort. And there's a couple things here. One, we have to see the reality that hits home in our lives. The reality of marriage is this. Okay, this is the big secret about marriage. Okay, you ready? Okay, those of you who aren't married, this is the big secret. The rest of us know this one. It's hard work, right? Living with someone in such a close, intimate relationship reveals not only the greatest joys, but also the deepest problems. You quickly learn how different two people can be. I mean, how many of you, when you who are married, you're dating your spouse, right? And you go, oh, they're both perfect, nothing about them. And then you get married, and three weeks later, oh, my goodness, right? What do you do with dirty socks? You just throw them under the bed? These are not real-life instances. I'm making it up, okay? Just so you know, okay? I put my socks in the dirty clothes I learned, okay? You are quickly faced in a marriage relationship with, temp- with a temptation towards selfishness. Insecurities become magnified. Little sins left unaddressed grow into bigger and greater issues. So we must recognize the realities of two things. One, recognize this reality, that marriage is God's creation. Therefore, the definition of marital roles and duties, the makeup of marriage, and anything else belongs to God alone. If you're going to have a successful marriage, God's way isn't just a way to approach marriage. It is the only way to approach your marriage. And if we're going to do it in a way that lifts him up. So first, you have to be faced with that reality, that God sets forth the standard of marriage. Secondly, you have to face the reality of sin. Your spouse is sinful. Okay, I didn't get any amens. That's good. Okay. Okay. No elbows flying. Because I have a follow-up statement. You are sinful. Okay. The things we discussed last week about your personal relationship with God must be foremost if you're going to see God bless your marriage. With his help, we can make our marriages work for his honor and his glory. And that's what we talk about. We talk about making marriages work. There's a great, um, there's a great commentator. His name is Warren Wiersbe. He's a pastor. Passed away in the last few years. And this is, a, I love this quote I read from him. He said this. Happy marriages are not accidents. They are the result of commitment, love, mutual understanding, sacrifice, and hard work. How true that is. Godly marriages take two individuals committing to love God supremely and each other sacrificially. They require a constant evaluation individually and jointly. Understand this. There are many broken homes that are still inhabited by married individuals. There are many broken homes still inhabited by married individuals. We use that term, broken home, right? Usually to refer to somebody who's, who, who's been through uh, something like divorce. But do you realize that some of the most broken homes, the parents are still there, the, the, or the husband and wife are still there, but they're not, they're not engaging in marriage the way God set it up. They're just two individuals trying to make life work. Godly marriage is two individuals coming together 
and working together to, as they each seek to grow in the Lord. But here's a great and comforting thing. You never reach perfection on this earth. There's always room to grow. There's always grace from God to grow. Your marriage can be an enjoyable, God-honoring experience. So let us take God's definition of marriage seriously and pursue him that we may see a little bit of heaven on earth worked out in our homes. And next time when we get together and talk about our marriage or our um, family series, we're going to see some specifics that God calls husbands and wives to do. But tonight, let's walk away with this. Marriage is God's ordained union and falls under his rule and reign for its definition, duties, and purposes. Marriage is a beautiful, wonderful thing created by our holy God. And as such, his definition is the only acceptable definition. Because of the fall, marriage is harder, but it isn't impossible without his grace. You know what? You may have faced some serious, serious struggles in your marriage. You may have faced some serious sin in your past life and in your marriage. But I want you to know one thing. God doesn't love you any less. I don't love you any less. The grace of God is greater than any of that. And we can continue to grow in him. And God's grace is greater than the struggles you face. And God's grace is greater than the, the things that you carry on in your life. And he wants you to find your worth in him. The world may have its own views on the participants, the purposes, the permanence of marriage, but that doesn't change the truth of God's word. You don't have to apologize or make excuses or feel bad in our world for holding a biblical view of marriage. And let's just be honest, if you're going to hold a biblical view of marriage, there are people who are going to say mean things about you or to you. But you don't have to apologize for saying, well, you know, this is what God says. You can tell the truth. You can hold the truth in love. If God says it, that settles it. Now, we also don't expect people who don't know the Lord to understand all of these things either. We don't expect people who, who need the gospel to understand exactly where we're coming from. So we share with them the good news of Jesus Christ. We show them with our lives and with our words and our actions what he, who he is and what he's done. Our marriages can be pictures of God's grace, and we can show that grace and love to others as well. May God help us to have marriages that reflect him to a watching world, because that's exactly what it is. The world is a place that is watching you know what? If you're married, and you're a Christian, you're married and, and you have a relationship with God and, and that works out and, and going to church and different things that you may do that other people don't do, you have people you know who are watching your marriage, looking to see if there's anything different, looking to see if there really is hope, if there really is a difference to the way that you do things that they don't. And our marriages can be such a testimony in that regard. It can be a picture of the grace of God each and every day. Lord, we thank you for the day you've given us. Thanks for the time that we've been able to be here and spend in your word. Tonight, Lord, we ask that you'd help us to take these things to heart. To understand what God has said and set up. To understand the ugliness of sin and the overwhelming goodness of God. 
Lord, we ask for your grace and strength in our marriage relationships that we would live them out in such a way that would honor you and glorify you, that you would help us to find the definition of these things in you and you alone. And Lord, we, we confess that we have our own struggles in marriage. We have times when we don't act in a way that God has set up, God has expected, because we're sinful people. And we ask, Lord, in those times that you'd help us to run to you, to seek you, to come back to you, to help us to live in your grace and to live in a way that would honor you and glorify you to, to realize that, that in you we can, um, we can get back up, we can go again for the glory of God. We ask now as we close this service tonight and prepare to go out into our weeks that you would go before us, that we would honor and glorify you this week. In your name we pray. Amen.